Amen. You may be seated. Our sermon text is found on page 9 in your bulletin. This is our fifth of seven in this little mini-series called Desert Trees. And so I'm going to read just the first few verses of 1 Kings chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I've gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find me, he will kill me, although I, am, I your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did? When Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Lord, for your blessing now as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. In 1974, Robert Nozick proposed a famous thought experiment. He wrote, quote, suppose you were there, suppose there were an experience machine that would give you any experience you desired. Super-duper neuropsychologists could stimulate your brain so that you would think and feel you were having any experience you want. All the time, you'd be floating in a tank with electrodes attached to your brain. Should you plug into this machine for life, pre-programming your life's experiences? Now, if you're worried about missing out on desirable experiences, business enterprises have researched thoroughly the lives of many others, and you can pick and choose from their large library of experiences, selecting your life's experiences for, say, the next two years. After two years have passed, you'll have 10 minutes or 10 hours out of the tank to select the experiences for your next two years. Of course, while in the tank, you won't know that you're there. You'll think it's actually happening. And others, other people can also plug in to have the experiences that they want, so there's no need to stay unplugged to serve them. Would you plug in? What else can matter to us other than how our lives feel from the inside? 
What else can matter to us other than how our lives feel from the inside? What a question. Now, in this little series, I've been proposing that modern life dehydrates Christian faith, but not necessarily in the way that you might expect. I've suggested that modern life dehydrates Christian faith because modern life makes it feel as if personal happiness is the central aim of life. Like, you just kind of walk around the modern world. It just feels like personal happiness is obviously what life is about. It's, what, it's the central thing we're all after. And we've added this little twist in the modern world that you can attain personal happiness with God or without him. I mean, we're not really anti-religious per se. You know, if the idea of God does it for you, makes you happy, you know, good for you. Do the God thing. But you just look around, it's obvious. There are many ways to get there. God is only one of them. And so unbelief, not believing in God now, it's not so much something that we consciously think. I mean, there are people who actually intellectually think their way to not believing in God. But for most people in the modern world, unbelief is really just, it's kind of the natural vibe when you're living lives in which God not only is not central, I mean, he is certainly not what life is built around, God is mostly irrelevant to this business of seeking happiness. And so you just kind of feel your way into unbelief. But if life is really all about happiness, the question I want to ask today is, do we know what we're talking about? What is happiness? I mean, Nozick just exposed what is obvious with his thought experiment. And that is that there has got to be more to human life than being happy. Because if all of life is simply about being happy, you could plug into his experience machine and you could be perfectly happy. The only thing is you just stop being a full person. Because you're actually a blob in a vat with a machine living your life for you. Is that really the good life? Even though you feel perfectly happy? I think we would all agree, if we think about it for more than 30 seconds, that a truly good life, a life that is worth living, has got to include saying yes to at least some things that do not feel good. The, a life worth living has got to include saying yes to some things that don't make me feel happy. I mean, if you don't believe that, you're incapable of love. You can never love anyone well if you're not willing to walk through some unhappiness, times when you do not feel good. And the question I want to ask is this, is nothing so valuable that you would endure great unhappiness to win it? Is nothing so valuable that you would, in, you would gladly be despised to gain it? Is nothing so valuable that you would be willing to suffer for it? Even die for it? All of which will make you quite unhappy. But is nothing worth that? Well, the modern world might be confused about this, but you know, we who follow Jesus, we're not confused at all, are we? This is not a matter of confusion for us to follow Jesus. And one way that the stories of our ancient foreparents one way that their stories water us in this happiness-obsessed desert we now live in is by showing us precisely how in suffering God's people have flourished. In suffering, times when they were really unhappy, God's people have been sturdy. They have been fruitful because they loved God, because they prized and pursued God, because they trusted and obeyed the living God. Now, I want to talk today just briefly about this dude, Obadiah. 
And I want to start by talking about Ob Obadiah's stress. This cat is stressed. We'll begin with his professional life. So what is his professional life like? Well, he is the manager, we might even call him the prime minister, of a royal household, the royal household, in the capital city called Samaria of the northern kingdom of Israel. How many of you have heard of King David? That reassures me a lot. You, king David, you know, the, the shepherd king, right. Hopefully you heard of David, Goliath at least, you know. How many have heard of his son Solomon? A little bit fewer hands. Now I'm going to th throw you all off. How many, have heard of, how many of you have heard of, Solomon was like this stupendously rich and successful king. How many of you have heard of Solomon's son Rehoboam? Oh, you guys aren't bad. Well, Rehoboam was a, a, a foolish young king because his father was a very successful king, and when Rehoboam became king, instead of listening to the old wise guys that used to um, counsel his father, he listened to his young peer friends about how to run his kingdom, and they said, Rehoboam, you should flex on your people. So he flexed on his people, and he kind of waved his power at them. And 10 of Israel's 12 tribes said, so much for you, King Rehoboam, we're out of here. And they went off and started another kingdom, the northern kingdom of the 10 tribes. And when we, this story opens here with Obadiah, that northern kingdom has not existed very long, and its short history, if you read it, has been nasty and brutish, because among other things, about 20 years ago, after a series of assassinations and kind of bloody purges, there was this general, really competent guy named Omri, O-M-R-I, Omri. And Omri, he prevailed in a civil war that was going on at the time, he bought and he built this capital city of Samaria, and he did enormous work to kind of fortify the northern kingdom politically and economically. He was a little bit like David and Solomon in the northern kingdom. He really made it a flourishing, wonderful uh, place in a lot of respects. Uh, politically, it was very safe. Economically, doing pretty well. And then Omri began openly promoting, openly promoting the gross idolatry and immorality of the Canaanites. Now you guys know Israel's history, right? God displaced seven nations of the Canaanites, horribly wicked people. Their immorality was infamous. Their, their idol worship practices, as we've said many times, involved things like taking your live child and roasting them to the God. It, just horrific stuff. And God, the, the land God said vomited these nations out, and God gave the land of Canaan to his people Israel but now Omri is on the scene, and he wants us to go back to all the ways of those former Canaanite nations. His son Ahab, whom Obadiah serves, has taken this re-Canaanitization program up a level because he, maybe because his father Omri arranged the marriage, we're not sure, he married, he has married a woman named Jezebel from the nation of Sidon to the north. The Sidonians are cousins of the Canaanites. And Ahab, following Jezebel, his wife, he openly worships her god Baal, openly worships Baal's goddess consort, Asherah. It's interesting, if you back up a couple of chapters, you would learn that the Canaanite city of Jericho, you remember Jericho? Bunch of trumpets, walls fall down. Jericho was actually rebuilt during Ahab's reign, probably with royal authorization, again indicating we want to like recreate the Canaanite civilization. And as you read this uh, the story, you discover that this new ideology of bringing back the Canaanite ways it is anything but tolerant. Any prophets in Israel, in this northern kingdom, who are faithful to Yahweh, the true and living God of Israel, any prophets who dare speak in his name, Jezebel has them ruthlessly hunted down and executed. 
probably in very gruesome ways. And as you read further in the story, after this passage that we just read, you discover that Ahab and Jezebel, they're not even above just outright murdering innocent civilians if it satisfies their whim. You might remember the story later where there's this guy named Naboth. He has a vineyard. Ahab wants it. Naboth says no. Jezebel, when Ahab's pouting about this, says, aren't you the king? Take off, take off his head. So they have Naboth killed. They're these, these kind of people. This is, these are the people that Obadiah serves. This is not a kingdom where you can afford to have a misstep. You, got, you cross Ahab and Jezebel, you are dead. So it's stressful. But to make matters so much worse, right as we open this chapter, this kingdom is in an extraordinarily serious economic crisis. Unbelievably serious. We've never experienced anything like it. Because some three and a half years ago, before this story opens here in chapter 18, this really weird prophet, I picture him with kind of wild hair, dressed in like camel skins, maybe eating locusts and wild honey like John the Baptist, just this kind of weird dude named, named this is his name, my God is Yah, L-E-Yah, we know him as Elijah, he appears out of nowhere, we, he's never mentioned before, he just kind of shoots up to the floorboards, appears, and he has one single message for King Ahab. He announces that there's going to be no rain in this land until his second coming. And then he vanishes without a trace. And there has not been a drop of rain in this land ever since. Three and a half years. Now, so we have some family here from Arizona. You Long Islanders know nothing of this. Do you know what happens to water tables in an arid climate after three and a half years without a single drop of rain? Your soil turns to powder. It is so bad. People are dried out and starving so bad in this land that the king is out. The king gets off his throne and is rummaging around in the lowlands of this, of this land. And his prime minister, Obadiah, is helping him. They are digging around in the lowlands because they hope they might find just a few blades of grass to maybe spare a few of the animals who are dying off. How do you think Ahab's mood is if you ever mention Elijah? He seethes with rage toward this man. He searches for him in every country and kingdom that he can because he knows that he needs Elijah. You need to come back and turn the water on. So he's looking for this guy, furious, homicidally angry. Now, it's actually quite funny because do you know where God, Yahweh, has, has put Elijah, you know where he's hidden him? He's hidden him up in Sidon, in a place called Zarephath, Jezebel's home kingdom. And he vanishes into Sidon, of all things. Well, it's not funny back home, because we're, it's not just that Obadiah has a professional life that's stressful. He is running a secret service. And this is not, this is not fun and games at all. Because while Elijah is off on his Sidonian lark, and it's cool stuff, you know, he has ravens come bring him breakfast every morning for a while, and then after that, God gives him this superpower. He can make a jar of flour never go empty, and a, a, jar, a jug of oil magically replenish, and he's off kind of having a good time with the power of God. Well, back home, Obadiah is carrying the burden of preserving Yahwehism, the true worship of the true and living God, preserving that under the very noses of murderous Ahab and Jezebel. He is running an absolutely extraordinary underground operation. This guy, for some time, has been sneaking away enough food and water. And may I remind you, we are in a famine caused by drought. You know what that means? There's not food and there's not water. 
Somehow he is sneaking away enough food and water in this famine caused by drought to feed a hundred prophets every day in two groups of 50 in caves. How do you pull this off without being noticed? And so this guy lives within inches of an unthinkably violent death at the hands of Jezebel's secret police every single moment of his life, probably impaled on a stake if they find him. And this kind of life after a while, brothers and sisters, makes you kind of high strung. By the time we actually read this story and we hear Obadiah talking, you want me to go talk to Ahab? He's just like, you get the feeling he's just like, I kind of had it, stress. What are you saying? Go say, go tell Ahab, Elijah, he's just rattled. And I want to ask you something. This is his life. It's a hard life. I want you to imagine Obadiah's reaction if you walked up to him in our blithe modern way and said, Obadiah, Yahweh just wants you to be happy. He is stressed. Now let's talk for a moment about his stewardship. Is this kind of life worth living? Can you imagine Will and Sam saying to Cecilia in a few years when she grows up, I've got a story to read you about what your life's going to be like. Let's read about Obadiah. What else can matter to us, Nozick asked, other than how our lives feel from the inside? How do you think Obadiah's life feels from the inside? And if we are at all tempted to romanticize this story, notice that Obadiah's work here is thankless, you know, when, when Elijah shows up, there's no pat on the back. You know, well done, Obadiah. Let's go out to dinner. I'll, I'll pay. No, he just starts giving Obadiah orders, sends him off like an errand boy to go talk to Ahab. That's his thanks. This work is extremely complicated. It's dangerous. It is lonely. And it's not even obviously effective. I mean, Obadiah's act of faithfulness in this story, preserving these prophets, it's not going to stop the spread of wickedness in this northern kingdom. It's not going to stop the eventual exile that's coming under the superpower of Assyria. The only reward this guy gets for all of this danger he put himself in is that his work pleases the Lord, and it does preserve a remnant candle in the growing darkness of this nation. So now I want to talk to you guys just for a minute about how to apply this to our lives, this story of Obadiah and his stewardship. First thing I want to say is this and I'm going to pull no punches today. If you are going to love God with your life, not just your mouth, if you're going to love God with your life, not just your mouth, you will experience cost and opposition. Expect it. If you're going to seriously love God and follow the Lord, you will experience cost and opposition it is interesting that while we hear understandable fear in Obadiah's voice, there is not a single whisper of self-pity. He is not sitting here feeling bad for himself, like, how could God do this to me? This is just what loyalty to the high king of Israel and indeed the Lord of all the earth, it's just what loyalty requires. It is hard, it is frightening, it is what is necessary. And I, I say that because our modern world is stupidly, insanely committed to the notion that you should not have to suffer, that you and I should not have to be unhappy. And the religious version of this is that a God who really loves you will not let you suffer. A God who really loves you will not ever make you unhappy. And so we are surprised. We are offended. We are scandalized. We feel sorry for ourselves when God, in fact, sometimes heaps suffering in our lives. 
But it's interesting, you don't even need a Bible, you don't even need to be a Christian to understand that if you are going to seek things that are worth seeking, they are, they are good things, they are worth seeking, and you're going to seek them with all of your heart, if you're going to hold on to things that are worth holding on to and not just, you know, cave at the first sign of struggle, if you're going to do that, press into these things, hold on to them, seek them, you are going to suffer, you're going to experience cost and very likely opposition. And to think anything else, you don't even need to be a Christian to understand, to think otherwise is infantile. I was reading an article this week on a program in Canada called MAID, M-A-I-D. It stands for Medical Assistance in Dying. Read Euthanasia. And this writer said this about Canada's booming assisted suicide program. She writes, the expansion and embrace of MAID, euthanizing people who are suffering. This reflects a shift in how our society sees happiness. In the past 50 years, we've built more and more of our expectations around happiness. Many children are no longer satisfied with having been raised with enough of everything. They can be resentful if they were not given a happiness-filled childhood. Hard times and sad memories may be a reason never to call your parents again. And made also suggests that if there is not enough happiness due to long-term depression or some similar condition, life is inadequate. But in fact, suffering does not diminish the meaning of one's existence. Do you think Simone's existence was less meaningful because God allowed her to suffer toward the end of her life? We live, this writer says, in a nearly brave new world society with CBD on every corner for all that ails us and nonstop streaming services. We have to think of practical ways to remind ourselves that the good life includes some suffering. We've got to think now of practical ways, because we might even say that with our heads, but to, to practice the fact that the good life also includes some suffering. And it is not just that there are goods that are worth holding on to through suffering. There are things that are so valuable you should be willing to suffer, even die for them. That's true, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. But there's actually more. There is a goodness, brothers and sisters, that will not form in us. I don't know why this is true. There is, even, though, even as there is goodness we ought to be willing to suffer to hold on to and pursue, there is goodness that only forms in us through suffering. I ran across a sentence from Jeffrey Bilbrow this week. I could preach 30 minutes on this alone. He says, machines can quote-unquote learn from mistakes, but humans must struggle and suffer in order to grow. Little Cecilia is going to have to struggle and suffer if she's ever going to grow. That is just how God made us. And I say all this, beloved, because I hope you find this first thing I've said. First of all, I hope you find it validating. I hope it validates you. It means that your pain that you are experiencing as you follow the Lord, that pain is real. We don't need to come in here on Sunday and plaster a bunch of smile Jesus loves you stickers all over it. It is real. You know why your life feels hard following Jesus? Because your life is hard following Jesus. We're talking with a sister this week, Sarah and I. It's okay to sit with that. It's not okay to marinate in it until you just have a giant pity party, but your pain is real. And I hope this validates. You experience cost and opposition in following the Lord because, I don't know, Jesus experienced cost and opposition in following the Lord. But I hope it isn't just validating. I hope it is also invigorating for you because if we can see it from another perspective, the hard life is an exciting life. Sometimes a little too exciting for my taste, but it is exciting. Gary Saul Morrison makes this point. He says, meaning 
meaning exists in a world with suspense. Now, I like watching other people's suspense. I like watching hobbits suffer on the way to Mordor. I don't want to be the hobbit suffering on the way to Mordor, but the fact of the matter is, a great story, a truly meaningful story, has suspense. It has things that are in doubt. It has things that are hard. It has mountains that must be climbed. You've got to make it to Mount Doom. This is just life. It is certainly following Jesus and taking up the cross. And there's a kind of vitality that comes with this. People may feel happier when you baby them into total security. This is what some utopian societies want, a world in which nobody experiences any pain or struggle. Parents parent like this, the moronic idea that your children will be happier if they are 100% bathed in security all the time. Well, they will be happier. They will certainly also be less human. So if you're going to love God with your life, not just your mouth, you will face cost and opposition. Now, a second point related to all of that. I'll be briefer here. Your willingness to suffer. Your willingness to suffer tells exactly how much you value your king and his kingdom. See, Jesus says we are called not just to expect the cross, we're called to take it up. Go grab that cross, embrace it, be willing to take it up because that's what honors God in a sense. And I'm not saying be masochistic and, you know, look for ways to create suffering in your life, but there is a sense you'll have plenty of suffering to walk toward. Walk toward it. Walk toward the cost. Walk toward the opposition, and I need to intervene here because I don't know what it is about so many Christians today. Many of us, when we think about, I'm going to take up the cross, go suffer for Jesus, you know what we immediately jump to? We jump to confrontation. Let's go make ourselves unpopular, man, so we can suffer for Jesus. Can I just encourage you not to do that? We're already unpopular. Let's just be Jesus people. I'd like to steer you away from the work of confrontation toward a much less glamorous and much less visible work to take up your cross of consecration consecration means find things you can sacrificially devote to the Lord because he is worth putting some skin in the game. If you don't have any skin in the game, go find a way to put some skin in the game because God is worth it. I want to ask you guys a question. What sacrifices in your life are showing your kids that God is worth skin in the game? See, we've got to think that through in a comfortable North American context. We're not persecuted. We're not being hunted down. We're not being executed for following Jesus. So I want to ask you guys, what are you giving up for Jesus? How about your Sabbath? You didn't hear this from me because I don't care personally, but how about your money? It doesn't have to come to Trinity, but are you giving? Is your money where your mouth actually is in following Jesus? Do you, you know, what do you ever suffer for Jesus? You almost have to go looking for this in a society that teaches you every single day of your life. You can just keep marinating in your comforts. Find things to give up for Jesus because he's worth it. Final thing. Final thing to learn from Obadiah. As our king works in secret, so we often do our best works for him in secret. Obadiah, it's interesting, this guy never has the spotlight. I mean, Elijah gets the spotlight. You know, the the story of Mount Carmel, the rest of this chapter, I mean, that's like a big bad story. He calls down fire from heaven. That's fun, limelight stuff. Obadiah never gets a single moment in the limelight. He doesn't have any of Elijah's supernatural resources. He never gets to, you know, make a jug of oil last a year, he's just faithful behind the scenes. But our king works in secret. 
And we, as followers of Jesus, we do not fear the margins. We do not fear the shadows. We do not fear obscurity. We don't fear never being noticed or remembered. You and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus, we embrace the patient, quiet, often unnoticed work of preserving and transmitting to another generation the life of God's kingdom. If we in this little flock of people never do anything more than simply preserve in our generation and pass on to another generation love for Jesus, that is gigawins. God sees, God rewards. Do the good works that are not flashy, but they also cannot be spoken against because they just speak the goodness of God. If your kingdom work is always Instagrammable, you probably have a problem. There are some pastors that could use a reminder about that. And parents, can I just say one last thing to you about this, about doing things in secret? Please let's not let our kids be, be the kind of people who just always want to ride the train of privileges. Your kids are so privileged, it's ridiculous. Mine too. Don't let them just be people who always want to ride the train of privileges. Teach them to be the kind of people who love to lay the track and repair the track so other people can ride the train. Teach them to be the kind of people who know how to serve so others are blessed and are blessed in blessing other people. That's the way of our king. That's the example of Obadiah. I'll close with this. You know, I think in our time in 2023, brothers and sisters, and if you're under the age of 25, I think you probably especially need to hear this. I think we just need to throw away the question, will this make me happy? Just, just throw it away. It's not helpful. The first question to ask about anything is, has my king told me to do it? If he's told you to do it, just do it. He will make you happy in the end, his way. But if it's not so clear that your king has told you to do it, and very often it's not totally clear, what does God exactly want me to do? Then here's the question to ask, not will this make me happy, is this worth doing? And if that ever gets discouraging and like, wow, what, a, what, what kind of a you know, hard, hard trip to lay on people from the Lord, if that ever makes you feel discouraged, remember, brothers and sisters, you are God's child because your elder brother thought exactly that way. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't regard that as something to be hold, held on to for his own advantage, but humbled himself and became of no reputation and took the form of a servant, became like men, was humbled all the way to the point of death on a cross, and so God exalted him. That is how much he loved, loved and loves you. And so you're with him and you're following him. And that's what I'd want to close with. You, brothers and sisters, you are loved you are loved by God who sacrificed this way. And so your sufferings for him are absolutely worth it. Amen? So guide us, Lord, in living this out. In Jesus' good name, amen.